When Franklin Jones died, his remaining followers packed his body with dry ice for three days so that people could pay their respects. And then it was brought to a meadow on the group's island in Fiji, where Jones had said he wanted to be buried. James Steinberg, one of Jones's most devoted followers, says more than 300 people traveled to Fiji for the funeral. I wasn't there. I'd left the group about seven years earlier, after being raised in it and being part of it until I was 16. Now I was busy living my own life. By this point, I'd met the woman who would eventually become my wife at a poetry reading. 2012, we got married in a redwood grove in Big Sur. We wrote poems together, traveled, lived in New York for a while, recently moved to Los Angeles, adopted a small fluffy dog with a black patch on his eye who sleeps on his back in our bed. All the good memories have flooded over the bad ones. And while I was working on the story of Franklin Jones, my wife and I found out that she was pregnant. A few weeks later, while I was carrying out interviews with my parents, I got to tell them the news, that soon I'd be a parent too. Now when I think about Franklin Jones, I think about my son. I wonder if someday, decades from now, he'll come to me, ask me to explain my choices to him, the way I've been asking my parents to explain theirs. What will I say about Franklin Jones, if my son asks? After all this reporting, I think I can see both sides. I don't believe that Jones was a god who lived a perfect life culminating in a perfect death. But I also don't believe he set out to control or hurt his followers. Now that I have as good an idea as I ever will about who Franklin Jones was, what do I do with it? Give me your attention. At any moment, and you will receive this grace. The only thing I could think was that if God ever had a voice, that is what it would be. And I fell asleep listening to that, and I had the most extraordinary dreams you wouldn't believe. And in my story, he's a villain. But I forgive him. But I'm not a me, you see. I literally am you. I'm Jonathan Hirsch. This is Dear Franklin Jones. Today, on my last day of interviews, I drive the winding roads towards Franklin Jones's property in Northern California. It's been half a lifetime since I visited the complex where I spent much of my childhood as a member of his group. My mind is racing. How will it feel to be back? Jones's group hasn't really grown in decades. By their own estimates, there are still about a thousand followers. It's hard to confirm the numbers. But there is one new guy living near the sanctuary that my dad's friend James wants me to meet. His name's Nicholas Wagner. He shows up with this iPad playing a bluesy rock version of Hare Krishna. Nicholas is 22 years old. He's handsome, freckled skin, blonde hair. He grew up in South Africa. He's a modern seeker. For him, everything that happens is a sign, a story. And the truth is, he's a pretty compelling storyteller. Like this one time he's at a gym in Miami and he meets a Fijian guy. And the guy tells him to go to the island of Taviuni, his home. And suddenly he has a tear in his eye. 
And he says to me, if you go to Tafi Uni Island, it will absolutely change the rest of your life. So Nicholas packs his bags and heads to Tavi Uni. It's a boat ride away from the island owned by Franklin Jones. Kind of had this idea that I would eventually find a spiritual teacher. Nicholas starts working, cutting down bamboo. And eventually, he ends up meeting an Australian dude who introduces Nicholas to a member of Jones's group. Nicholas spends an afternoon with them, and they invite him to visit Jones's island. Nicholas goes. But at the same time, he's starting to feel sick, dizzy, and weak. One of Jones's followers sends him to the group's doctor. I sat down, and he immediately, he knew what it was. It turns out a cut Nicholas had gotten on his leg from some bamboo. It had become severely infected. He said, you have blood poisoning. He said, if you did not come to this island, you would have been dead by the end of the week. As Nicholas is recovering, a follower of Jones gives him an iPad with talks of Jones on it. Oh, wow. I, when I heard that man, Adida Samraj, speaking... For Was the, it the first time? For the first time. The only thing I could think was that if God ever had a voice, that is what it would be. And I fell asleep listening to that, and I had the most extraordinary dreams you wouldn't believe. And I remember feeling like this being that's talking right now has been with me for my entire life. So Nicholas dedicates his life to spreading the word of Franklin Jones, meditating on him and living with the remaining followers of his group. Then in 2014, he leaves Fiji and comes to California. He says he's jealous of people like me who interacted with Jones in real life. And do you, do you sometimes wish that you could have met him in person? There is not a day that goes by that I don't wish that. Me, James, and Nicholas eat sandwiches together. I see a lot of myself in Nicholas. Honestly, it scares me a bit hearing him talk. I actually find myself trying not to make eye contact. I also see how James nurtures him, lets him borrow his books, and stays up late talking to him about the Dharma. He did the same thing for me. I leave Nicholas and head up to what was Jones's sanctuary. My stomach is doing somersaults, and it's so dramatically different than I remember. The hillsides are barren. They've burned um, all the way to the top of the mountain. Um, the trees, the oaks are, are naked. On the mountain, trees used to shroud the road on all sides. In the winter, when it would snow, it looked like Narnia, this remote, densely forested, far-off land, sheltered from the outside world. But today I can see for miles. The few trees that remain are charred and brittle. The place feels exposed. Two raging wildfires burning tonight in Lake County, scorching thousands of acres and threatening hundreds of homes, and it could be a while before firefighters get those fires under control. That's because of the hot and dry conditions. In 2014, a massive wildfire destroyed large areas of Lake County. Over 1,400 homes were evacuated. Many were owned by members of Jones's group. James was one of those followers who lost their home. Rental car? Yeah. More sense for all the driving around, for sure. Um, Later, James and I drive around the area. Like, James says the night of the fire, he and several followers frantically moved boxes of Jones's belongings to a secure place. 
He himself planned to leave the next day, so he went home to get some sleep. But in the middle of the night, he woke up surrounded by flames. There was a ball of fire in the tree above his car as he sped in reverse out of the driveway. James now lives on Jones's property in a small, musty bungalow with a cot and a tiny altar. You can see the bald hillsides from his window. From his front porch, the tall fence surrounding Jones's private residence. Nobody lives there now. I ask him if he ever feels sad that Jones is dead. And he says every once in a while, he comes across a book that Jones would have liked, and he gets a twinge of sadness. When we would see him in the early years, every time when we would leave his house, we'd all line up and get a hug. I've hugged him like, you know, a hundred times. And it was the deepest love I've ever experienced. Um, He had no limits on that love. But the depth of love that I experienced from Adida was extraordinary. He also kicked my ass more than anybody has. He's hurt me more than any other person ever hurt me. But it was always founded in a deeper love. What I actually know as God is what I've seen in his eyes because I never had experienced on my own any divinity that great. I've often wondered, do people who spent their whole adult life following Jones, do they ever regret it? I'm an older man now. I don't regret that because I was around in those early years when he was like in that kind of relationship. And the reason I was singled out, I mean, I can't tell you ultimately why, but part of it was I really wanted that. I was willing to give up everything for that. I really didn't care about who I was with, what kind of job I had, what my future was going to be like. I saw someone who was alive in the divine and was offering me a relationship to come into that. And that's what I wanted. I didn't care about anything else. When I look at my parents' lives, I see similarities to James. They don't have much money or stuff. My mom continues to work into her late 60s. My dad lives a quiet existence down the street from my mom. They're not together, but they're still friends. In all the interviews and conversations I've had while trying to find out who Franklin Jones really was, not a single person told me they regret their time in his group. Many regret things that happened in it, for sure, but not the fact that they joined or part of it. So I also wonder, are they telling me the truth? Maybe it's just too hard to admit they made a mistake. James and my dad still hang out. James says for years, Thomas was so angry, it was hard to get him to talk about anything else. But now, both Thomas and Kathleen have a new guru, this fit, smiley white guy who used to be a competitive bicyclist. Having a spiritual path is still really important to them. When things ended with Jones, Thomas saw him as a kind of spiritual imperialist, holding court over the unenlightened. But he still wanted it more than anything. Wants it. Enlightenment. When I asked Thomas how he makes sense now of who Jones was, his answer surprises me. I don't know. I don't know the story. All I know is my story. And in my story, he's a villain. But I forgive him. I forgive him because he's no different than me, you see. It's not that he did something that I wouldn't do. Maybe I would do that. Anybody is susceptible to human nature. Which is why I guess he can also say he doesn't regret raising me in the group. Because in his story, maybe that time was really good for me. Maybe, he says, it actually gave me a head start on attaining enlightenment. 
you can't imagine how happy I was that you went through there. Because who knows what, but maybe a thousand incarnations are burned up in that one moment. Maybe. My mom, she's a bit more circumspect. You know, it wasn't whether or not he was what he was, or maybe he wasn't all that he thought he was, or, you know, it's like, that was... I mean, I know that being in his room was... I saw a lot of things that other people weren't privy to or didn't have to see. But we can get idealistic sometimes about what a God-man's supposed to be. If he's a man, he's still a man. I think for Kathleen, whether there were questions about his teachings or his claims of enlightenment or his behavior was all sort of beside the point. That following Jones was wrapped up in a lot of things that weren't strictly spiritual. My mom loved her husband, loved her life, wanted a safe place to raise her family, wanted security. And she had big doubts about whether that was possible in mainstream America. Which actually doesn't sound radical at all to me. It sounds like a lot of people. Maybe just framed in different terms. We were so interested in waking up from just being a human, we had experienced a level of life that was true. And I am grateful that we were able to have a son in the midst of that, knowing. For years, my parents and I skirted around the issue of Jones. Like I said, we didn't really talk about it until I started working on this story. But in the past, if it came up, I would try to get them to admit that maybe Jones and his experiment, their life for 17 years, hadn't worked out. They always just refused. I never really understood why. But now, as I await the birth of my own son, I think maybe I'm starting to get it. Because if you have kids, at some point, they will probably try to understand you, your choices. Maybe as a way to understand where they come from. So how do you respond? By saying that your life has been a series of challenges and missteps that maybe culminated in a failed experiment that some people consider a cult? No way. You tell the best version of your story, the version you think will bring your children the most happiness, the version you can best live with. Leaving Jones's sanctuary, I noticed the tall wooden gate surrounding his house try to commit the image to memory because this will probably be my last time here it's funny my parents left this place this guru this guru years ago but i realize now that in some subconscious way i always figured i'd return the very last time i saw jones he was holding a wooden staff looking over our heads our hands raised in the air as we shouted his name over and over we called him master god Franklin Jones was born. He lived. He believed in a bunch of things, and my parents believed many of those things. For a while, I believed them too. Jones tried to make all those beliefs into something real. Along the way, he inspired some people and hurt others. And then one day, after I'd left, tried to find my own path and tried to forget him, he died. Until this project, 
I never thought of Jones's group as a cult. I mean, other people have said it to me plenty of times. But it was only recently that I permitted myself the thought that Jones's group, yeah, it could have been a cult. Maybe my parents did raise me in a cult. And allowing that one thought to enter my mind, I realized it was the thing I'd spent my life resisting. You know, some part of me still wonders. Maybe I'm just not seeing it the right way. Maybe I haven't read enough of the thousands of books on Jones's reading list, listened to Jones's tapes, prayed in front of his photo. But in my gut, I think I found what I needed. I don't have all the answers. I never will. But I'm able to see the world through my own eyes. And for me, at least, that's enough. Franklin Jones is reported and produced by me, Jonathan Hirsch, along with Ashley Cleek and Annie Aviles. Our associate producer is Nora Lind. Our senior producer is John Asante. Our executive producers are Chris Bannon and Jenny Radelet. Special editorial guidance from Peter Clowney. Thanks to the great sound engineers Casey Holford and Eric Jorgensen. Original music by Ray Lynch. Thank you to Christopher Joyce, Laura Mayer, Tegan Wenlin, Ross Ufberg, Danielle Ufberg, Seth Curcio, Julie Henson, Om Bunma, Jake Zeman, Hildy Lynn Helfenstein, Roya Yazdani, Julia Ulela, and the great researchers at Columbia University's Rare Book Library, Gus Contreras, KERA, KNAU, Suki Lewis, Don Horse Press Books, Ryan Hentius, and Valerie Hirsch. And a thanks to my parents, Thomas and Kathleen, the original Hirsches. One last note. The series may be over, but let's keep the conversation going. Spread the word about Dear Franklin Jones. Tell your friends and family. Tweet your favorite moments of the show using the hashtag DearFranklinJones. And you can submit your questions or comments on our website, DearFranklinJones.com. Click on the Contact Us button on the top of the homepage. Thank you so much. You can think of household name episodes as lifelines when you're stuck in a boring conversation. 
Need to change the subject? Tell them the secrets behind Victoria's Secret, or how a single lie turned KFC into a Japanese Christmas tradition. It was lie, but、uh, <laughs> I still regret that. Did you know Panera opened cafes where customers could pay whatever they wanted? That before it was a hippie car, the VW Beetle was created by Nazis. Hitler built a city for the Beetle, <laughs> like the hippie Beetle. You can talk about how Lacroix, Crocs, Carhartt, and Canada Goose all became surprisingly cool, and wow your friends with stories of TGI Friday's wild early days as one of the first singles bars. I'd be standing at the bar on Fridays and say, "Hi, darling, I own this place." That seemed to work. I'm Dan Bobkoff, and I host Household Name from Business Insider and Stitcher. We make this show so you have something to talk about. Subscribe to Household Name for surprising stories about famous brands. Find it on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you listen. Household Name: Brands you know, stories you don't. Listener.